Hi, I'm Lisa Edwards, Director of Inclusion and Diversity at Robert Half, and on behalf of my colleague, Kim Dickerson, Managing Director at Protivity, and myself, thank you for joining today's Forward Thinking Session, Finding Purpose with Calvin Harris, Senior Vice President of Finance and CFO of the National Urban League. Continuous learning is essential for us individually and collectively, and we are proud to work with the FEI to deliver this great forum for discussion today. In the session, we will cover topics such as how the National Urban League is operating in today's world and the challenges Calvin is facing as CFO. Kim, can you please share your thoughts as well? Thank you, Lise, and hello, everyone. I'm Kim Dickerson, Managing Director at Protivity. Today's session featuring Calvin Harris is important and timely. The National Urban League is one of the oldest civil rights and social justice organizations in the country, and Robert Half and Protivity are proud partners. Having a purpose-driven business has a proven impact on financial performance, and we look forward to hearing from Calvin on how the National Urban League's finance strategy is being shaped by social injustice and the response to it, COVID-19, and other current events. We hope you enjoy today's discussion. This is Olivia Berkman and welcome to Balance Sheet. This episode is going to be a little different. As part of our FEI Forward Thinking series, we at FEI are speaking with four different senior level financial executives about navigating such challenging times. They were all great discussions and I encourage you to sign up for the last in the series, which is scheduled for July 31st. Our CEO, Andre Siskochkovich, who I interviewed in a previous episode, will be speaking with the CFO of the Kansas City Chiefs. I'll include a link to that event and you can also find it on financialexecutives.org slash events. Today, you're going to hear part two in the series in which my colleague at FEI, Laura Schiffman and I interview the CFO of the National Urban League, Calvin Harris. We covered a lot of ground in this conversation, including how remote work has helped him gain the trust of his team and how we can turn this time of increased attention to racial injustice into a movement, not just a moment. Here's our conversation with Calvin. Welcome to part two in our FEI Forward Thinking series. I am Olivia Berkman, Managing Editor of FEI Daily, and I am co-hosting this discussion with Professional Accounting Fellow at FEI, Laura Schiffman. So today we're speaking with Calvin Harris, and before we introduce Calvin, we thought we'd provide a bit of background on the organization for those who aren't familiar with the National Urban League. The organization was founded in 1910 and is dedicated to economic empowerment, equality, and social justice. They collaborate at the national and local levels with community leaders, policy makers, and corporate partners to elevate the standards of living for African-Americans and other historically underserved groups. Thanks, Olivia. Before I dive into our questions, I want to first just introduce Calvin. Calvin is the Senior Vice President of Finance and Chief Financial Officer at the National Urban League. He is a certified public accountant, a graduate of Morehouse College in Atlanta, and has served as an auditor, controller, forensic accountant, consultant, 
and CFO for several organizations over a 25-year career. So Calvin, thank you so much for being here with us today. I want to start with a simple question, which uh, probably uh, isn't going to warrant a simple answer given these unprecedented times with a global pandemic and a major surge in the fight for racial justice in the wake of the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Rayshard Brooks, and so many others. So Calvin, how are you? How has it been for you working from home over the last several months? First, thank you for for having me. It's really, really great to be with you today. It's been a big adjustment working from home. Clearly, my staff has has functioned better (laughs) than than I have. I'm frankly a a manager that that likes to get around and and, and talk with his his team. So having to do that virtually has been a big adjustment for me. But um, I think one thing that we've, we've certainly seen is that we can really adjust. We can we can definitely adjust when we have to. So I think after a, a rocky start, at least for me, uh, things things are actually going pretty well working from home. And I, ironically, today is the anniversary of me being uh, one year with the Urban League. Uh, we've seen a lot of changes just in these last six and a half months. So uh, work from home now feels a lot more normal. I'm able to grow this uh, thing on my chin for as as long as I can can stand it. But uh, you know we've, we've all adjusted pretty well. Things can. That's great. Great to hear. Um, So moving on a little bit, I know Olivia gave some background um, on the National Urban League, but can you just tell us more about the organization, perhaps the history, structure, the role of national and how you work with your local affiliates? Definitely happy to. So the the National Urban League is a historic organization. We were founded in 1910 uh, right here in New York City. But the overall Urban League movement, as we as we like to refer to it, ends up being nationwide. We have our national office here, but we also have just under 90 affiliates all around the country and in uh, 40 states. So irrespective of the size of the city, the, the odds are that you, you're pretty close to, a, to an Urban League affiliate. Now, with that sort of network, it allows us to here nationally have a, a very broad and national focus uh, on things that are going on around the country while having those local affiliates make sure that on the grassroots level, we're able to, to service individuals. So we, we don't really think of it as an either or working with our local field or national. We think of it as really one big one big movement that that all, all together helps make make the country a better place for all of us. That's great. Thanks, Calvin. So before we, we move on to more questions, we're going to do a polling question. So, Michelle, I will hand it to you. Has your organization released a statement about racial injustice? I'm surprised to see the the numbers be kind of split here. Calvin, first of all, congratulations on your one year anniversary with the organization. Um, I want to ask, does this surprise you seeing seeing these results? I can't say that it, that it surprises me either positively or, or negative. Admittedly, I, I, I think if we had looked at the same poll just two months ago, we might see it at a very very different place. So I, I think because of the the unfortunate things that have that have occurred, or at least I, I'll say that have gotten attention, uh, because may, many of the things that are coming to the fore right now are, are really long standing challenges. I think it's it's really opening up a lot of our eyes to some of the things that are going on that we may not have consistently seen. So I, I, I'm not surprised at the number, but I, I, I think if we had had the conversation just two months ago, we might have seen uh, a, a much wider split between the two. Mm-hmm. I think that's definitely accurate. 
shifting gears a little bit, Calvin, when we spoke in an earlier conversation, you had mentioned that you began 2020 with a focus on uh, the two things were the census and voting efforts. Um, So now, of course, we're in the middle of a pandemic combined with the impact of the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, and so many others. As Laura mentioned, what impact has all of that had on your strategy as an organization and, you know, as a CFO? That That's a mouthful because it, it, it feels like these last six months have been six years because it's really, really shifted a lot. You know, even in we, we have a we have a board meeting upcoming and I was talking to my treasurer and even in talking about where things are, treasurer of the board, I was saying, really, I think of this as three different blocks. So the first two and a half months for us were just a, a quote, smooth sailing, although the census is, a, is a, something that happens only every 10 years. And um, major elections like a presidential election is every four years. Now, of course, we're a 501c3, so we're you know not affiliated with any party. Our focus really is just on making sure that everyone who wishes to vote has the ability to do so. Um, and the census, same sort of thing. We don't have any preconceived notion on where the number should be. We just want to make sure that every person that should be registered in the census does so. So those things are still out there. Um, but then once you hit mid-March and it became really clear that COVID was going to affect the U.S. Our office closed on Friday the 13th, which is, <laughs> you can insert your own joke right there, I suppose. But, but so since March the 13th, we haven't been back in the office. And at that point, when you think about, I'll say the next month and a half, or at least towards the end of Memorial Day, towards Memorial Day, towards the end of May, there are all these thoughts and oh boy, we're in the middle of a pandemic and we've got a recession going on. What sort of belt tightening do we have to do? Our major events, our, our annual conference, are we able to do that? Uh, how are we going to pivot? Can we even travel to help our affiliates? What, what are we going to do? So during that that two roughly two month period, the thought was, okay, now we've got to think about tightening belts. We've got to think about how we're going to make it through uh, a lean budget, do new projections. Then the unfortunate awareness, we'll say, of, of the different different deaths that you, you you just mentioned brought in a lot of attention and with it new opportunities and new resources to really continue the mission that urban league and organizations like the urban league we're not the only ones out there uh, have been doing so then there's the additional resources to really focus on social justice uh, racial econ- uh, and economic inequities and really just still continuing our, our, our mission but now we've had to take a different thought on okay what does that now look like if we're going to move towards these new areas while at the same time still not forgetting we're in the midst of a pandemic and recession. So I'll say it has been in equal parts, one of the more challenging scenarios <laughs> since I've been a CFO, albeit with, with so much tragedy attached, it's definitely been one of the more interesting. It's, it, it feels like it, it, it changes on a, on a daily basis uh, in terms of the things that we're thinking of. So it's, it's definitely not a, a, a boring time. That, that is to be sure. Yeah, I don't, I don't exactly envy you your role right now. <laughs> um, I, so I do want to, I have a couple more questions about strategy, but I quickly want to give you a, a question from a listener because um, I think it's a good one. Uh, back to the polling question that we asked earlier. Do you find that companies creating a statement now is perceived that they're reacting from a politically correct standpoint versus a, quote, change in their vision. What do you think? 
That is a that's a fantastic question, and that, and that and that's a tough one. And admittedly, I think it's really going to I think it's really going to depend on the organization um, because I I could I've seen some items, and to that to that person's question, I've had both of those thoughts depending on the on the person. And I think so much of it is, and, and I don't think this is you know necessarily unique to organizations, but also you know. Heck, it comes down to, to people. Are organizations putting out these statements now, even if they're extremely well drafted, are they consistent with who they've been in the past? Now, you know, people can change, organizations can change. We can say, you know what, okay, we didn't catch it before, now we're paying attention. And I applaud every organization that has, that has made that shift. But then I think what's going to become important is beyond the statement, what do, you, what do we do next? You know, there is, um, without delving too deeply into a, a a sensitive topic. I, I'm a Marylander. I grew up in Maryland, and I grew up in the Washington, uh, Washington D.C. area. So there's a lot of discussion going on about the football team that I admittedly have always have always cheered for. And so much of the discussion focuses on why is the change occurring? What's the real driver? So I think similarly, where organizations are really just doing something that really feels natural and organic, they'll be received as natural and organic. Where it doesn't appear to be as natural, there may be some skepticism. But I don't think that should necessarily stop an organization because if you've taken a different approach because, hey, we didn't see it before or we didn't uh, acknowledge it before or understand it before and we see it now, I think that's fine. But what will matter is what happens after because there are, uh, I, I can assure you, there will be lots of opportunities beyond a statement to work with organizations like the National Urban League because we can help you go beyond just a statement to doing real action. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's really about follow through. So well said. Okay, back to strategy. You (laughs) also mentioned (laughs) that uh, resources are coming in kind of unexpectedly and the budget in your words was is basically worthless. Um, So now you're facing uh, the unique challenge of deploying all of these resources. Uh, So obviously I'm not going to ask you for a specific number, but can you give me an idea of what kind of volume increase we're actually talking about? I'll say in terms of, of numbers of donors, it, it's, it's definitely in the, 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 the triple digits of, of percentage. It, it's been very robust. Part, part of our interesting challenge is making sure that we, we've proven year after year that we're good stewards. And, and you know, one of the things of being the CFO of, a, of an organization that's existed this long is that top of mind for me is always making sure that I'm not just thinking about right now, but thinking about the people who will follow me. Admittedly, many many years from now, <laughs> but but those who will follow me. So I, I think one of the one of the more interesting challenges we're having is that we want to be good stewards, and of course we're going to talk about what needs to happen. Where where there's always an opportunity is to is to talk about what that deployment looks like. In many cases, our resources are simply going out to those local affiliates. Um, they're doing amazing work, not just in cities where you would expect there's a lot of activity going on right now, such as Minneapolis and Atlanta. And, and Louisville um, and New York, obviously, but but throughout the country, we're seeing a lot more, uh, a lot of movement and a lot of activity and a lot of interest. We've seen just so many of our of our affiliates have partnerships formed that they hadn't seen before. Um, so, what what I'm more excited about than than actually a dollar amount is the opportunity of making these 
what hopefully won't be one-time relationships or, or knee-jerk reactions to actual partnerships that continue over time. So we've, we've definitely seen that as one of, the, one of the more interesting challenges is with the new resources coming in, we, we also want to be responsible um, like we've always been and make sure that we're being thoughtful and deploying, but also thinking long-term. So it's, it's been an interesting challenge, that, that is for sure. I have another uh, question from a listener that I think is a good one. Back to uh, you were saying that National Urban League is able to help a company with figuring out what to do next. So um, somebody wants to know how can companies use local affiliate organizations to assist with any of the what do we do next planning? Maybe you can give us some specifics on that. Absolutely. Um, there are a few ways to go about it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm per- frankly, perfectly happy to be a conduit. Uh, in, in most cases, what I would end up suggesting you do is to reach out to the head of that local affiliate. Um, because of the different sizes, in some cases, you really won't be working. It may, you know, at a larger affiliate, that, that CEO may have someone that they have working directly on that partnership level. And some of the smaller ones is going to be the CEO directly. So I usually suggest talk to that CEO um, and and, and get the dialogue going that way. But, you know, I'm more than happy. You know, I, I consider this part, an unofficial part of my job. I, I'm more than happy to connect anyone with, with a local affiliate to keep that momentum going. So the last thing that I want to ask you before I um, before we move on to another polling question is what is the National Urban League actually doing with all of the resources uh, that are coming in? And I'm sure there's a Please. lot, so maybe just give us a couple examples. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, so much of it right now is we've had some new programs start that are related to food insecurity, which admittedly was something that we've been interested in and we hadn't been able to do as much with before. Um, we've had some new programs related to that. Of course, we've had some focus on social justice and that's expanded out a, b- a bit more. Um, and then we've been able to provide a few more grants. Um, actually, I shouldn't say few, it's a lot more than a few more grants related to workforce development. Um, because what's, what's so important for us to remember, and it's, I, I, I'll speak for myself, it's, it's so easy to forget that when you're able to work remotely and still do your job with you know, relatively little hiccup, that that may not be everyone's scenario. You know, there are many small business owners that to keep their businesses going, they simply have to uh, go out. Or many uh, first responders and blue collar workers, they, they have to go out. So for those people who have unfortunately lost their, their jobs, our workforce development work is more important than ever. And what we have in, in most, I'll say just about all of our affiliates are different workforce development programs. That would be job training, uh, computer skills. We also have home development and home buying programs. So a lot of those existing programs have been able to get a lot more a lot more focus. Because um, sometimes we forget, I, I admit, I, I do as well, that we're still in the middle of a recession. <laughs> There's still countless people who are out of a job, even though we've seen some improvement. So that sort, of, that sort of work, we've been able to add even more resources to than we had before. Calvin, I want to talk a little bit. You were talking a lot about strategy and, and what, how um, National Urban League is using its resources. We had a question from a listener that I think is, is a good one um, about just whether you think National Urban, Urban League would, would merge with similar organizations or, or more rather around partnering with other organizations. Are you um, seeing opportunities to do that in the work that you do to, to work with other uh, organizations with the same sort of mission and focus that may have different resources that you'd be able to, to leverage? 
Absolutely. Uh, you know, partnership is, has long been part of what we end up doing uh, with the Urban League. You know, it, it, it's interesting for as, for as long as, as we've been around, there are still organizations, you know, such as the NAACP, which, which, does, which does magnificent work, which is actually older uh, than, than we are. So we certainly partner with them. Um, we, we certainly have partnered as well with uh, uh, Unidos, formerly La Raza. So, you know, not just on the corporate side, obviously, because a lot of our partnering happens uh, on that uh, corporate um, level, but we certainly do partner with other organizations. Um, you know, we're most interested in having impact, and if that impact is greatest by working with other organizations, then we definitely, we definitely have done that. And I, 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 I think it's fair to say that that's a place where we'll continue. And even looking at the last question, particularly when it comes to a lot of uh, inclusion and diversity conversations, we, we've often partnered with those two organizations I mentioned and a few others to often help organizations with crafting up and actually living up to uh, their their inclusion and diversity plans. That's really helpful. Thank you. So I think some other things, and I know we were talking about just the strategy and, and the challenges you're facing as an organization, and maybe let's dig into just your role as a CFO. What are the cha- the specific challenges that you're facing as a CFO in this environment? Yeah, the, well, putting aside the working from home part, um, I, I think the challenges we're seeing right now is really, well, planning for the uncertainty. Now, I think as CFOs, all of us are used to the idea that we, we, we can come up with a budget, we can come up with a projection, and, and it's probably, you know, it won't be perfect just a few days after we've done it. So that, that's normal. We expect that. The, the, the unique challenge of this year has been just how dramatic the adjustments have, have been and having to pivot and adjust on, on a dime for those things while, while doing it remotely. That's really been and the, the huge challenge. I think so many of us are used to the idea of having to, you know, forecast and you re-forecast when you're halfway through the year. We, we are a, a December 31 organization. Unlike a lot of nonprofits, we actually have ours match up with so many of our, our for-profit partners. It just makes it easier on all sides. So this time of year, sure, I'd be thinking about projecting in the normal course of business, but I've already done that three other times <laughs> just in the, in the past six months because we had to kind of rethink things. So that's been, the, I think, probably the biggest challenge. Uh, but at the same time, still thinking long term in terms of what's been important and what's going to still be within in your mission. I'll say a day in the life for me when I first started, or I'll say that first six months, seven months, really was very straightforward. You know, going to the office, you know, you, you worry about your monthly closings, projections, your board meetings, all very straightforward. A few projections here and there, but nothing nothing that you know most of us don't, don't handle on a pretty regular basis. This scenario is, is almost a completely different job. <laughs> but but it, it's admittedly just as rewarding uh, because I, I enjoy the challenge. I won't deny that. Uh, but these days it's really paying attention to what's in the news in a, in a particular given day, making sure that we're being responsive to any new partnership opportunity, making sure we're paying attention to the other opportunities that are out there, then projecting out for where things are, are, are coming down the line for us. So it's, it's a very interesting time to where there's a lot of long-term and short-term thinking simultaneously, um, where we where that has a lot of still, but still has a lot of uncertainty built into it. So uh, I can't really say that there's been a, a, a typical day, <laughs> especially since I've been in quarantine. But 
I admittedly enjoy the kind of change. So, you know, sometimes you have to be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. That's right. Well, you wouldn't be where you were now if you didn't like a challenge. So, so that's great. That's interesting too. Right. So, so moving on a little bit more, Calvin, I, I had gone through, you know, you obviously have had an incredibly successful career and, and you've talked about what it's like to be a CFO at the National Urban League and, and with your one year uh, anniversary just uh, yeah. just this, this month. So how does this experience compare to your previous experiences as a CFO and other experiences in your career? You mentioned yeah. earlier that you, in, in previous conversations, that you're used to being at smaller um, nonprofits where maybe you were scrambling with, with less resources. So, so right. how did right. this experience kind of differ from, from your others? I have to admit that this is without question the most uh, rewarding experience I've had uh, in, in my career. Um, it, it's funny because I was thinking with, with today being my anniversary, I was, as I was transitioning from a, from another um, opportunity in, in, in Maryland, uh, I didn't really have any intention on leaving Maryland. I, I came up here for this, for this job. And as many of us are used to, when you have a whole search firm scenario, there'll be this long job description. And I, I distinctly remember when I saw that job description, they basically said, we don't expect anyone to have all of this background in this Rolodex, in their Rolodex. Well, for those who still know what a Rolodex is, <laughs> but we do want, we want as many of these things we had. And as I looked through, I was like, yep, I've done that. I've done that. I've done that. And remarkably enough, I had literally done all the things they had asked for, partially because I had had so many different, um, different experiences. So in many ways, I see this is without question, the, the most challenging job. It's, it's equally as challenging to balance new resources as it can be to to balance resources when you're in a really modest, mean sort of scenario. But it's been very rewarding because of the work we do. I, I begrudgingly, <laughs> I should probably say it that way, I begrudgingly accepted early in my career that the uh, not-for-profit space, the NGO space was one that just felt right for me. You know, I started my career back at Arthur Anderson when they existed, and I had some for-profit clients, I had some not-for-profit clients, and I just kept migrating uh, towards that. Uh, and it just turned out that, you know, even we talk about, I think we're, we're talking about finding purpose. I, I realized my purpose really was, I still love accounting. I, I love being in, in, in financial leadership roles, but it was important to me also to be simultaneously at an organization that I know is doing good. Now, that's not to say that you can't do good at for-profit organizations. Not at all. That we, we see time and time again how organizations that are in the for-profit space do good for the world. I just realized that being at an organization where the core of our mission is, is just finding those partnerships, it just just fits. So this job is, is one where it became pretty clear pretty early on that it was a good fit. There's there's been no you know no regrets. It, it's definitely uh, more challenging. But when when I think back on a lot of the experiences I've had over time, some of the ones that were a little tougher uh, than others in terms of balancing the the books and and the, and the and the leadership. I feel like all those positions really, you know, strengthen me up for what I need to do here in terms of just being able to adjust and frankly not being that, that disturbed when you have to suddenly go from coming up with a, a skinny budget to a budget to where you have to identify new new funding and new funds for the organization. So I feel like everything I've done before has really kind of set me up for, for what I'm doing now. We have another question from the listeners. What, if any, challenges are you finding with communications with staff and partners as a result of working from home? I, I, if, if you asked me this in March, 
late March, I was like, I don't know how we're going to make it work. But um, as it is now, it, it, it feels like, for better or worse, people have gotten used to the new normal. I'll say if, if I can learn to, to work Zoom and, and Skype video, then, then, you know, then anything is possible. I, I think at this point, folks have gotten used to virtual communication, um, even when it comes to, you know, some of our health care sometimes. So it feels a lot different and it's a lot, I, th- I think what's going to become interesting though is as, you know, nationwide, we're able to open up the economy and, and you know, get to a point where all individuals can safely uh, go back to to work, what that's going to mean. I, I think it's safe to, to think that many organizations will think, you know what, we were able to make this work without incurring this much rent. Or if we make sure that this staff person is well taken care of with their with their internet and computer, they, they don't even need to come in and it's still just productive. I think what'll be interesting is on the back end how we how we change from that. But I think the the communication folks have uh, have adjusted. I, I know on our end we have. We're we're about to have our second board meeting uh, done virtually. The first was done by phone. And we turned. It turns out it didn't work. <laughs> it worked fine, but it didn't work as well as we wanted. And then everybody said, "Okay, we're going to go Zoom." And everybody's had their practice runs, and everyone's used to it. So I think over time we've been forced to get better at it. I know I've been forced to get better at it, and we're, we're not seeing as much of a challenge now as we did before. If, if anything, it's a lot of the the, the adjustments. It's balancing on is on on being responsiveness. Uh, I know for us, we've had a particular challenge of making sure that our employees are still making time uh, for themselves, literally taking vacation uh, and, and, and making sure that we're being you know respectful when it comes to hours. I'll admit on, on my team, I have a lot of people who are comfortable emailing at 10 p.m. In the, at, at night, which is me as well. <laughs> so I'll respond if they send things to me. But we, we've seen by and large that people have adjusted a lot better than, than we might have thought in the beginning. That's great to hear. Uh, another related question from, from the listener, has COVID had a significant change on your staff's work-life balance? I know you sort of addressed this already. Yeah, no, it, it, it definitely has. And, you know, it depends on, on, on the person. You know, I, I happen to be, I'm, I have to be a person who falls in the, in the, uh, in the high risk group. Um, not, not because of age, but because of an underlying health condition that in a normal world doesn't matter at all. I can, can, can easily manage it, but I have to be a little more careful. So we've had to have a lot of really candid conversations in terms of making sure that everyone's, you know, taking care of themselves taking care of their health, uh, both physical and mental. Uh, I, I will say, and you know, I think it feeds into the question and perhaps what I said before, one of the things that we're very much focused on is just making sure that people are taking that time. I know one of the things that I've done is, uh, even though I have a propensity to, to send an email after hours, I've made sure I've at least gone into the, the email application and had it so that it won't be delivered until sometime the next morning. So even if I have a thought, say, okay, I got to get this thought out, I have it so that, that my staff person won't see it until, you know, 9 a.m. Or, or 9.30 or 8 or whatever, so that they don't feel compelled to respond. But that has been something we've tried to put a lot more, a lot more focus on. Um, in some cases, we even had to remind people, say, hey, we're not looking to carry over leave, <laughs> so we want to make sure you're, you're taking that time. And, uh, you know, we definitely get it. In many cases, we were talking just before we got online. Uh, I'm not sure I had a vacation plan that's been scrapped. A lot of people have had vacation scraps, and if you're working from home, you know, well, I'm not sure if I want to take a, a staycation. I'm already, I'm already here. Why do I need that? So we've, we've been encouraging people to do that because 
little by little, I think we're all a little concerned about, you know, burnout happening, which is, which is normal. I, I, I half, half joke every day to someone, what day is it? Because every day feels basically the same. It's just, you know, the sun rises, the sun falls, and I'm at my computer doing work. So um, that balance has been a lot tougher for all of us. So we have to keep it in mind. Yeah, a little bit of that Groundhog's Day feeling. And I can speak for myself. I did take a couple of days off, as you called it, a staycation in June. And it did wonders. I mean, I think it was two days, you know, but it, yeah. just for my mental health, it was really, really important for me. So I encourage everybody on listening to do the same. Another question that I think is a good one from a listener uh, asking you to talk about what you have done in managing your finance team. Um, you, you did touch on this a little bit. Sounds like you're being very flexible with staff. Um, but how do you deal with people problems? Yeah, that, boy, that's a great, a great, great question. So I'll say the dealing with the people problems is is very different when you're remote uh, versus in person. My 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 general mode is to if we need to talk, we just we 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 take care of something, we deal with it right then and there. Um, we we talk offline figure it out. If there's something we need to correct, we talk about how we're going to correct it and then just monitor on the back end. Remotely, remotely it's a bit bit more challenging. I have a daily standing call with my entire team uh, at the same time every day. And we have a very simple approach. It's 1.30 for us. And we're scheduled from 1.30 to 2. Most times it is a five-minute chat. Hey, how's everyone doing? Is everyone safe? Everyone doing any issues we need to talk about when we get off the phone? Uh, we had a 15 minute call on Monday, which was very long for us. Uh, and we have the agreement that if there's a conflict, like, you know, the us having this great conversation today was going to conflict. So we just canceled the, the meeting. We don't reschedule it. So we want them to know that, hey, at this time, we're just going to check in. If there's anything urgent, we can kind of talk it through. And if not, to at least try to build in some consistency in the middle of the day. Then beyond that, we pretty much have had to fo- change our focus from worrying about what time a person starts and watching the clock, which I'm not a fan of watching the clock anyway. Uh, if, if you're getting the job done, then the hours that you work are, aren't as as important. But uh, we've had to focus to very much being project based. You know, here are the tasks we need to get done. Here's the time by which we need to get it done. What do you need to make sure that you hit the deadline? I am operating with the presumption that my staff are, are working the, the, the required seven to eight hours, but there's a certain point where you just have to trust trust your people to do the right thing. And, you know, admittedly from a from a reasonable and practicality standpoint, if my folks are able to get things done and get it done in less time, then, you know, great, have at it. They should put their leave in, but, you know, I have no way of knowing, so you ultimately have to trust staff. But, yeah, yeah I mean, heck, the reality is, even if we're in the office, if you don't trust the people who work for you, you're going to have a problem anyway. So this ends up being the the, op- the perfect time to, to make sure that you're, that you're trusting them. And, you know, that we've had a few hiccups along the way. I think that's normal. We've had a few cases where there were some issues that have happened that probably wouldn't have happened if we were in, in person. And, we've, you know, we've dealt with them and, and moved on. But 
I, I have to admit, when it's all said and done, having to work in this method has probably allowed us to end up trusting each other, particularly with me. You know, it, it takes a while for a person in my role to get the, you know, get the full confidence of the staff, particularly with my predecessor was in the, in the role for almost 20 years. So in, in many ways, a lot of the relationships we've had to build now uh, a bit virtually. But managing the people is really just trusting them, making sure we have, you know, aligned goals and then just monitoring how it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, another question that I think is worth talking a little bit about is if schools don't open. So we're about halfway through the summer, right? And yeah. single parents will be compromised. How are you leading change? Or how are you addressing this? How are you thinking about this? That, that's one where we're looking at it multiple ways. One of the things that we've been intentional about, and we've been doing this really for the last number of months, we, we've been talking about what does reopening look like internally for, uh, gosh, about two and a half months now. But we've been doing it with the assumption that we don't know when we're going to open <laughs> safely, but we're going to keep keep talking it through. And that admittedly is one of the, the larger concerns is many of our staff have children who are in school. And when the when their children are home and they're working remotely, they're able to make certain things balance out. And we, we already know we're gonna to have to have individual conversations to where we may have to build in some degree of flexibility, uh, depending on what the what the schools uh, what the schools do. I'm happy to say in our case, at least here in New York, things have been relatively uh, aligned to where we haven't really had to face that challenge. But I think it's, it's a challenge we're all looking at. So what we're going to probably end up doing in, in most cases is, is dealing with it on a on a case by case basis. Calvin, we've talked a lot about what it's been like for you as a CFO and your professional experience. Uh, but I think it's important that we also you know, talk about what it's been like for you as a black man in America uh, during this time. Yeah, you know, that's, that, that one question probably could take the entire session, but <laughs> I, I'll, I'll say it this way. I think it's, I think it's first important to, to know, and I don't think this would be terribly surprising. You know, I'm, I'm just one individual, um, so I, I, I wouldn't go as far to speak for my, an entire community. Uh, th- there are certain things that are, that are pretty consistent. Um, you know, I don't, have a, I don't have a single friend who, who happens to be a, a black man who hasn't had certain challenges in, in terms of, of harassment. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, but that that is uh, that is a reality. Many of us have faced them so much so that it feels a feels as a normal thing. Uh, what what I've taken as much as anything is trying to be thankful in the face of so much tragedy going on and and so much loss of life and so much challenge in the country that we're having the conversations, we're having the dialogue. We don't even necessarily agree all the time as much as try to talk it through, you know, be respectful to one another. And if, if and when we're able to be you know, maintain empathy. Um, we're able to have a lot of we're, we're able to have a lot better conversation. You know, the the the, the reality is, and in many cases, I've simply had a, a different experience than many others have had. And that you may not have seen it doesn't mean that it hasn't occurred. I mean, there are many things we we hold as as truth that we may not have seen or in, or, or taken on individually. And that's not a knock on on anyone else's experience, but 
my experience ends up being being genuine. So I end up being just happy that we're having the conversations. I'm always happy to give you know real examples on things I've seen, things I've experienced, things I know that a lot of my friends have seen and experienced. And even as I say that, I realize that in many, many cases, I've had it better than, than many. I've had it better than most. Um, you know, certainly I've worked hard. I, I've worked, I've worked as hard as anybody. Uh, but, but at the same time, I know that there are certain opportunities that have come my way that, that a lot of, a lot of other people haven't had. And I've, I've certainly taken advantage of when they, when they've come. So I think as I try to, you know, <laughs> break down a, a, a really uh, a deep question, I think what, what, what I've, where I've landed as much as anything is happy we're having the conversations anxious to see where it goes, extremely happy that so many have wanted to partner with organizations like the National Urban League, but also wanted to make sure if I, if I steal, from my, steal from my boss, <laughs> who's on, who ends up on TV all the time these days, you know, I want to make sure that the things we're doing right now become a part of a movement and not just a moment. So what, what will really help move the needle for all of us is trying to make sure that, okay, let's have these conversations, but let's also talk about what's next. How can we make sure that we're moving things forward together? Because all in all, that's really what we're looking for, making sure that wherever we land is a place that brings us all, all together. And that, but I'm excited that we're that those conversations are happening. It feels like a very different time. So I'm excited about what's coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as am I. I think that's really interesting what you said about kind of understanding all of our different degrees of privilege. And you know, I also think that's that stories yours and other black men and women that you know. It's such a powerful way to hopefully elicit empathy and help us understand each other a little bit better. Um, and it's brave, you know, to be able to share your own stories. So um, I think we all appreciate, especially now, you being kind of very honest. So, Laura, we've gotten a ton of questions from our listeners, which is great. And we all anticipated that. Um, do you want to go through some of those, Laura? Sure. Thanks, Olivia. We'll try to get through as many as we can. And uh, we had a question. What advice you give to maybe in more of a company sense of how um, how companies can partner with with the National Urban League? I know you talked about how, you know, to reach out to you and maybe just a couple more specifics about the best way to go about that um, and how to leverage all the different offerings of the National Urban League. But also, I think, you know, someone had mentioned too how to coach um, that it might take time to see the results that you might be seeking. So maybe kind of packaging that, what it actually looks like to partner with the National Urban League. Happy to talk, and I, and I realize there are a few, so I'll, I'll, I'll try to you know shorten up my response here. In many cases, when people are working with us, um, what what tends to happen is they they talk with our our team on the partnership side, and you know they're they're called that for a reason. So they they talk about on the partnership side, we end up having the discussion on making sure we're really clear in terms of what the organization is looking to do, uh, what the company is looking to do, what what the urban league is looking to do, how it can all mesh, and then crafting something that that fits in that bucket. 
Sometimes it's directly with us nationally. Sometimes we help uh, coordinate with the, with the local side. So we tend to end up doing individualized uh, partnering, and that's pretty much where, what we're set up for. And that, admittedly, that's part of why we prefer, quite honestly, for the, for the conversation to start on the national level, because in many cases, because of the way we're set up, we can tell you which uh, affiliates might best get to your goals. Even if you're in a particular city, you're, of course, more than happy, and we're happy to have you communicate with that affiliate directly, and that certainly is something we encourage. But if, if you want to work beyond that affiliate, you can come to us nationally, and we can help coordinate that. So we end up having conversations in terms of talking about what that would look like. And, and admittedly, part of the reason why I said, hey, if you want to just shoot me an email, because I'm used to I'm used to doing that, um, you know, helping to guide that path, uh, but it ends up being an individual conversations. We, we haven't really gone with much of a, of a one-size-fits-all sort of scenario these days. Okay, great. That's that's really helpful. So we ha- I have a, another question for you, too, just and maybe more on the, the um, individual side and, and in your experience as a CFO. I know your LinkedIn page says that you're an on-call CFO. Um, and so maybe just a little more information about what that means and if that is something that I, I know, you know, with, with COVID and, and the state of the economy, obviously times are tough and is that something that could be an option for folks that are in transition if um, they get laid off or if there's, you know, what what does that look like? Maybe just explaining that a little bit more. Explained it right, pretty well just there um, because I spent just under seven years, uh, although part of it I was doing dual roles, uh, on-call CFO, CFO consulting. Uh, so I ended up doing a lot of work with startup organizations and turnaround organizations and a few nonprofits doing that. That was during... Uh, our prior <laughs> economic downturn, and I left my position, and I really wasn't finding anything that was interesting to me. So I was consulting during that time period, and uh, I got to admit, up until this job, I found that one of the most rewarding times because I was able to do a lot of work with a lot of different organizations, and was still able to um, still able to uh, support myself that, that in that way. So I don't do I don't do any of that sort of work these days. I just don't have the time <laughs> to to do it. But I, I definitely would encourage you as a as a as an option for something to look at down the road. So we had another question come in. We are very good at diversity at the entry level and through direct hires at the executive level. Any advice as to what works well to grow diverse talent from entry level employees? We are really successful doing this with women, but not with minorities. What's your perspective on that? question. I really appreciate the, the person who asked it. I, I, I can tell you there, there's no one size fits all to this one. And uh, it, it's a conversation. That that very question is a conversation that happens all the time. And so it really begins with the company and the, the company and, and the culture. What happens in, in many cases, you know, there's no one reason why a person leaves a, a, an organization. They might have just, got, it might have been a, a case where there was just another opportunity they had to leave. Uh, but it may also be on the other end where they just didn't see growth coming up. So having programs focused on, on inclusion and diversity are helpful, but to to that the listener's point, where it really matters is at that higher level. Uh, because part one of the challenges and why so, so many programs ultimately struggle is that around the table, you know, the, the CFO, the C-suite level, the middle manager level, folks don't see others who look like them, whether we're talking about uh, people of color or women or any, uh, any other um, uh, 
uh, any other group. So the culture matters a lot. Uh, having programs that are there a lot. And then having a plan that you follow through. And what often is helpful is as people leave, making sure that you're talking to them and hopefully you've created an environment where they're going to be honest. Because, you know, I've, I've certainly left positions where I just had a great offer and I could, and I didn't feel like I could turn it down. But I'll admit there have also been times where I've left organizations where, but you know, before I was at, at the at the C-suite level, so I was like, well, I'm just not seeing people who look like me, and I'm not really sure that long-term it makes sense for me to stay here. So uh, understanding why people are leaving, and if you've got a good relationship with those individuals, those can often be your best people to help you identify ways to, to improve that. Because having people at the, at the table really do, does matter beyond the entry level. Are there any specific programs into which companies and individuals can contribute directly? So I know this is probably a, a, not trying to boil the ocean here, but what are your recommendations just on how people can, can contribute? You know, a, as it is, we, we have existing programs focused on workforce development and we've started, pro- we've, uh, for this year especially, related on the census. At, at the risk of giving a canned answer, in many cases, so much, so much of the best information is right on our website, and if something catches your eye, you absolutely are able to say, hey, we want the money to go directly to this program. You know, we certainly have money that's restricted in that way. So, you know, these days, of course, we're, we're taking some of the unrestricted money and still having it go towards uh, social justice because we think that's where the need is. Uh, but but uh, absolutely, if, if, you, if you want to have something go directly to a specific program, we absolutely welcome that. Great. Thank you. Um, so let's see. We probably have have time for one more question. We had a, a lot of more questions about working from home, and so maybe this is a good one to, to kind of end with, as I know, you know, so many yeah. people are still working from home. Um, maybe working from home for a lot longer. So two sort of related questions on how we kind of, are we measuring productivity differently, do you think, because of working from home? You had mentioned, you know, I'm okay if you get your work done, even if it's not within the seven to eight hours that, that, you know, you're required to work. And then maybe on that too is like, do you think that it's working pretty well, despite some glitches here and there for, for you and your team, because you were able to build that rapport before all of this happened, before we, we all kind of went home and, and, and did things uh, from our home offices. Oh, that, that's a great point. Um, I would have hated to have this for this to have been my first day at work because I don't know how I could have built rapport <laughs> with individuals remotely. I guess we we zoom all the time, but um, yeah, I I, I I I do think to the earlier part of the question, we've had. I'll, I'll speak for myself. I've had to reevaluate what is important in terms of uh, productivity. You know, I, I as I said, I was never much of a of a clock watcher, um, but although I didn't have to with this team, it's. Uh, I inherited a team that is very much a put your head down, work at least eight hours, and then maybe they'll leave when they feel when, when they must. So I didn't really have to worry about that part anyway. But yeah, working remotely, you end up thinking a lot more about what's pro, what's important today. So I have very much become, I, I, admittedly, I think in some cases a better manager, even this far into my career, because I've had to adjust how I think about things. I'm very much focused now on the on the project. Uh, I don't necessarily care. Uh, 
how many hours it takes. You know, I won't say that to them, <laughs> but, but I'm just okay, how many hours it takes. And if you need more time, we, we kind of talk it through. So I think uh, d- to make sure I'm also being fair to them, we've, we've been forced to talk a lot more. We didn't talk on a, on a, on a, on a daily basis in such a structured way. So working from home has forced us all to, to act a little differently and be a little differently. And, and hopefully after some early hiccups, we've all kind of adjusted works what, what works best for our team. For this team, what, what's going now is, is working well. I, every day I ask them, hey, do you need any more? Do you need any less? And everyone's, everyone's cranking through pretty well. And, but, you know, it might differ. Some people might need a lot more hand-holding, and you just have to be willing to adjust to give them what they need at a time like this. Because we can't forget, we're still in the middle of a, of a pandemic. There are, there are awful a lot of people who are just simply still scared uh, to walk out their door. So, um, you know, I want to get all the work done, but I'm trying to make sure as, as the manager and as the leader, I'm still taking care of what they need to make sure that they can take care of their families at the same time. I um, I count myself as one of those people who's scared to go out the door. So, <laughs> so I want to just encourage everyone who's listening to visit NUL.org. Thank you so much for being with us today, Calvin. I think this was a really, really interesting conversation. Uh, we packed a lot in. And thank you everyone for your questions. They were very thoughtful. I'm sorry we did not actually have enough time to get to all of them. Uh, But again, Calvin, thank you. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. And thank you for taking the time. 